Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And tonight's topic is shoddy research. Shoddy research being applied to alternative theories and alternative health news. So let's just take a look and see uh, what's going on. We hear a lot about Big Pharma. We hear a lot about uh, bogus research. But there seems to be a lot of this going around in the alternative as well as the regular medical arena. And so tonight, I'm going to talk about the startling research findings being presented in the alternative media. And we're going to just take a look at them, the same close, critical look that we take of the uh, medical-industrial complex itself. So let's get started. Our first article um, says that you want to treat these people like royalty. in order to promote your own health and, of course, recover from depression. And this title is actually very misleading. So the premise here is a research study has been done by the Royal Academy, of course, and it indicates that a person's probability of recovering from depression is improved by the number of friends that they have, or so this article says, or this review of the article says. And so... If we go back to the original research itself, um, it says that they looked at adolescents, so not people of all ages, just adolescents. And they looked at adolescents who had five male friends, five female friends, or less. People who had one of each were excluded from the study. And what they found, first of all, what's a friend? That's why I said, oh, what's a friend? Well, when you ask the depressed person, how many friends do you have? And they tell you they have five friends, then that's the definition of a friend, what they report as being a friend. So in other words, it doesn't matter if the other person considers themselves to be a friend to the depressed person. What matters is the depressed person's perception of whether or not they have friends. So in this case, then, whether you treat your friends like royalty or not is irrelevant. What's relevant here is if you feel you have friends. And so that's one piece of misleading information, but it gets better. So this study then, or this um, natural article online, goes on to say, well, if you want to uh, not be depressed then you need to treat your friends well. You need to have more friends. And people who have more friends um, recover better from depression. But, of course, that's not what the study said at all. The study didn't, it didn't even consider people who had lots of friends. It only considered people who had, well, some friends. I know a lot of us would uh, consider, if we only had five friends, we'd say, well, that's 
pretty sad shape of uh, you know state of affairs. But it doesn't stop there. So the study, this is the full scope of the study. That is it. But the alternative natural article goes on to say, eat your vegetables. Well, wait a minute. The study didn't mention vegetables. There's no evidence based on the study that there is any impact of vegetables of omega-3s, which the article goes on to endorse, or any other type of intervention. All it says is that people who are depressed and have more friends are more likely to recover and recover more quickly from depression. If you read the, the index article, all it means is you need to get as many imaginary friends as you, as you possibly can up to a number of five. They didn't study more than five male and five female friends. So they really don't know. So if you have five imaginary male friends and five imaginary female friends, or literally perceived friends, then your chances of recovering from depression are absolutely awesome. So I would recommend, based on this research, that everybody get at least five perceived male friends and five perceived female friends. In other words, these are people that you perceive to be your friends. So the other person doesn't even need to know that you exist. Because again, in the study, none of this was verified. They didn't go call up these friends and say, hey, Joe's depressed and he says that you're one of his friends. Is that true? So that was never done, not part of the study. So we have here an alternative uh, literature piece that says having friends improves recovery from depression, but it doesn't say about having friendships. In other words, a friendship would be that your friend that you think you're a friend with actually agrees. Yeah. Your friends. So that was never actually tested or investigated. And it was also, again, these, these dietary interventions, none of them were part of the study. So the study gives no weight or benefit or support to any of the other conclusions in the article. It's like you start with a piece of research and then just free associate. So what's wrong with this? You say, well, Dr. Daniels, you know, eating your vegetables probably would help depression. And some omega-3s, you know, they're from other studies. Exactly, other studies, not this study. So why is this so important? The reason it's so important, because things are changing so quickly. Now we have genetically modified vegetables. Now we have an increase, increasing assortment of chemicals and poisons in the vegetables. So there actually is some question. Are vegetables still the most beneficial form of nutrition? Maybe, maybe not. But this study doesn't give any indication of that. And you can't draw that conclusion. An excellent example of this is back in the 70s, it was considered that chicken was healthier than beef in terms of its impact on people's health. What wasn't really mentioned was that the beef was adulterated. Cows were being ground up and fed to cows. Well, as time passed and we got into the 90s, cows were no longer being fed to cows. The cows were being fed, ground up dead cows, were being fed to chickens. And the chickens were doused with hormones and antibiotics. And so in the 90s, 
And in the 21st century, chicken, regular store-bought chicken, is actually more dangerous to your health than beef. And so because these things change over time, it does make a difference. And it is harmful when one looks at a study about friendship, not friendship, just having friends, in this case, perceived or even imaginary friends, and then extrapolates that to a cause and effect of diet or even supplements. So that's one area uh, where we have natural healing articles that appear to be presenting startling information. Oh my God, friendships heal. Treat your friends like royalty. Then you look back at the study and these depressed people in the study, there was no verification that they had friendships. All they had was a perception of having friends. So if we're going to believe the studies, and why not, um, then you need to have perceived friends. Five perceived male friends and five perceived female friends, because that's what the study studied. So if the study didn't study it, we can't really draw any additional conclusions. Okay, next our big, my favorite, is cancer. I shouldn't say my favorite. Uh, an area of incredible misunderstanding, cancer. And so I'm going to try and lend some clarity to it. And we're going to start with some pretty unclear advertising from the natural realm. And this is an email advertisement that was sent out um, to promote a cancer education project. And so it says, I've got bad news. One in every three people on the planet will be given a horrible diagnosis. I bet it's already affected someone you know or love or close to. And the hard truth is, every 60 seconds, over 15 people globally, and it's all around the world, die from cancer and the complications surrounding it. And do you want the truth of your own chances? And they tell you to take this little quiz. It says it's powerful, insightful, and just might give you the tools to help avoid a tragic outcome. So take the quiz right now and see your own future. All right. So it, of course, does not stop there. And they go on to say, hey, there, the statistics are grim. 21,918 people die of cancer every single day worldwide. Even scarier... In other words, if you haven't already scared, then it should be, is the fact that one in every three people on the planet will be diagnosed with cancer in their lives. That means the likelihood that you or one of your close family friends will get cancer is very real and very scary. Okay, so now we've got double, we're doubly scared. So again, take this powerful quiz and uh, good things will happen. Sadly, most people don't take any action to do anything about cancer until they've gotten a diagnosis. And at that point, the chemo and radiation and side effects will usually kill you faster than the cancer itself. So, let me talk about daily steps you can do, as if you're not already busy enough. And then they go on to say, fortunately, if you already have cancer and are fighting it, there are alternative treatments being researched by some of the most brilliant medical minds that are more natural 
and not as destructive to your body as chemo and radiation. Okay, so they're destructive, but not as destructive. Okay, so you got to read between the lines there. So let's take a look at this, this, these figures, and let's just see just how scary this really is. Well, first of all, we've got a little more information here. Numerators are fine, like how many are dead, but how many of what? So we've got to get a denominator. Let's start with the world population, since we're talking about the world. There's 7.3 billion people in the world. Uh, Wikipedia agrees with this, and so does the um, World Health Organization that keeps these numbers. Okay, 7.3 billion people in the world. And 21,918 die every single day of cancer. Multiply that by 365 days a year. More or less 8 million people die every year of cancer worldwide. Okay, got it. Now, so what we do then is we take this uh, 8 million and we divide it by the 7.3 billion. So what that tells us then is that one person in 1,000 will die each year of cancer. But wait, in the United States, we know that only eight people per 1,000 die every year of all causes. So if we take the one and we divide it by the eight, then we find that more or less 14% of deaths in the United States are due to cancer. Now, it turns out that in the, in the United States, 39.6% will be diagnosed with cancer. All right, so 14% of deaths are due to cancer, but 39.6% will be diagnosed as cancer. So what do we do? Well, we divide the 14% by the 39.6%, which tells us that only 35% of those diagnosed with cancer will actually die of it, which means 65% of people who are told they have cancer will not die from that cancer. I'll repeat that. 65% of those diagnosed with cancer will not die of cancer. They will die of something else. You say, well, doctor, what about all these cures? It must be having an impact. The medical profession itself confesses that only 3% of people who receive chemotherapy benefit from it. So only 3% of people who receive treatment for their cancer actually have an outcome positively influenced by that treatment. So we can dismiss therapy as an impact. Just toss it out. So as soon as you get the cancer diagnosis, you know, boom, immediately, 65% chance you will die of something else. So this means that to reduce the death rates in cancer patients, we really have to turn our attention to other factors besides the cancer. And so actually, if you have cancer, the last thing you want to do is treat the cancer because it has the lowest probability of killing you. You have this other 65% that needs to be addressed. And so according to the cancer industry itself, like I said, the treatments only influence the outcome with 3% of people. So the issue then with, with cancer is that it's not a death sentence. So with this logic, with this, with this just a little bit of mathematical information, knowing the population of the world, knowing the diagnosis rate in the United States, 
we can see that the natural healing industry is engaging in fear-mongering and piggybacking on the same tactics used by Big Pharma. In other words, we've got the pot calling the kettle black here. And it's, it's a tragedy for people who have the, the cancer diagnosis and simply an attempt on the part of the natural healing industry to compound and train economically exploit people who are who have received this label, we call it a label. And so the biggest thing a person can do, the best thing they can do, if you're a gambling person, if you have cancer, is to ignore the cancer and to look at the other things that might do you in, other 65%. So in other words, because the cancer has only 35% chance of killing you, you have to say, well, wait a minute, even if my cancer was cured, I still got the 65% other stuff that's going to do me in. And, of course, bottom line, we all have a 100% chance of dying. So, another strategy for a cancer patient is to turn your attention instead to quality of life. Okay, am I pain free? Can I engage in activities? Can I enjoy myself? So, the move or movement to cure cancer, if you look at these death rates, is misguided. Now, another... Um, thing to point out here is it might be best to simply not get the diagnosis at all. Make no attempt whatever to diagnose it because, of course, 65% of people who get the cancer diagnosis are not going to die of it. And that's pretty darn good you know, lifetime odds. And this is my favorite. This is a big story, this next one. And this has really hit the news. I mean, everyone's picked up on this story. And this is a story of Daraprim. Now, what is the problem with Daraprim? Well, Daraprim is a drug. It's a generic drug. But even though it's generic, it's only produced by one company. And so the interesting thing with this drug is that it used to cost $1 a pill, and it now sells for $750 a pill. And so there's this, uh, somehow a um, outrage in the uh, natural healing community. I'll just read this one article. Outrageous big farmer greed on parade as a $1 pill for treating fatal infection suddenly skyrockets to $750 per pill. So this is serious fear-mongering here, Why? Well, first of all, they use the word fatal. We have to take a look at what is fatal. So again, if we know a death rate in the United States is eight people per thousand per year, then for something to be fatal or increase your chances of death, it must have a death rate of eight per thousand or more. Let's just say. So what infection is this that has a death rate of eight per thousand or more? And then we have to, the presumption here for treating fatal infection is that the treatment is effective. So let's take another assumption is that the drug company or any company does not have the right to price their product as they wish. Okay, so let's see what else we get here. So the total weight of Big Pharma is on parade this week as a company 
took innocent of a life-saving medication. And the next question is, wait a minute, how many lives has this medicine saved? That's a good question. That treats parasitic infections like malaria. And we have to stress on the word treats here. The pill, mostly purchased by AIDS and cancer patients, but wait, are these AIDS and cancer patients taking this pill for malaria? The answer is no. They're taking it for toxoplasmosis. But let's go on. It used to cost a dollar each, but now, thanks to a pharmaceutical company, each pill will cost you $750. And the New York Times covered this story, which is interesting. Forbes, of course, covered this story. And specialists in infectious disease are protesting a gigantic overnight increase in the price of a 62-year-old drug that is the, watch this, standard of care for treating a life-threatening parasitic infection. This is life-threatening, okay? This is not life-taking, life-threatening. So now we've gone from fatal down to life-threatening. And so this drug is called Derecrim. And it brings the annual cost of treatment for some patients to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. So, somehow, this greed is on parade is out of control. Well, if it's out of control, you have to ask yourself, well, who should control it? I mean, the, the same government that runs the FDA? I, I don't know about that. And they go on to say, uh, it's any wonder one out of five of every dollar spent in the U.S. economy is spent on sick care costs. Check out the following charts that shows how different countries spend money on different ways. So now we're really kind of, again, we're free associating. The issue is this pill. And they say it probably costs 20 cents to manufacture. In other words, we don't know. Okay. And so according to the drug company, and they call him a few not nice names. It's a bargain for health insurers at $750 a pill. A bargain compared to what? And of course, a bargain compared to all the other monopoly-priced drugs. And now they mention a tree with an herb, and this herb can be used uh, at a lower cost. And that this drug company is making the case for natural medicine. Okay. So why don't we go back to the facts of the case? So that's why it's nice. Well, wait a minute. What is this drug treating? What infection is this drug actually treating? Well, this drug is treating toxoplasmosis. Well, what's toxoplasmosis? Well, toxoplasmosis is an organism, a parasite, that can be spread by contacting kitty cats. So people can just stay away from kitty cats. And you can just contact it when you uh, work in the soil, when you eat raw or undercooked meat, when you use dirty dishes, um, when you don't wash your fruits and vegetables, when you drink unpasteurized milk, and uh, when you don't cover your children's sandboxes. The point here is we have an infectious disease that's food-borne, and cat born. In other words, easily, easily avoided. But let's just say you don't avoid this disease. Let's say you're one of the unlucky ones who catches this disease, toxoplasmosis. 
turns out that one point five million people in the US are infected annually with toxoplasmosis. And of these seven hundred and fifty die. Or another way, one person every five thousand who contracts toxoplasmosis dies. Now, remember, this is one per five thousand. So the death rate, the baseline death rate in the United States is eight per thousand or forty per five thousand. And so this infection is one fortieth as deadly as just breathing. You can't hardly call this a deadly infection. It's certainly not life-threatening. Why? Because the number of people who die of this infection or having this infection does not increase your chances of dying over and above your chances of dying just because you woke up. So it does not make you any more likely to die. Most cases of this infection um, go uh, undetected because people don't even have symptoms. Not the kind of infection you want to go around pre preventing. Or put another way, two, if you want to use the American population, three point, 318 million as a denominator, two and one million Americans will die each year of toxoplasmosis. That means out of 500,000 Americans, one will die of toxoplasmosis every year. This is a pretty small number. And 12,000 Americans will develop some type of symptoms from toxoplasmosis that last over a period of time. In other words, three in 100,000 Americans will suffer with symptoms of toxoplasmosis. So it's difficult to say this is a, a serious disease. And when you have to treat at least 5,000 cases in order to save one life, and that's if this drug is 100% effective, it's a real stretch to say that this drug is saving lives, or that it even could save lives. That's, that's toxoplasmosis. That's the way it's used for AIDS patients and for cancer patients. They just take it every day to prevent toxoplasmosis. So, of course, the numbers need to treat here. If the drug were 100% effective, is literally uh, 5,000 cases. But let's go further. What else is this drug used for? Well, it's used to treat malaria. So it's indicated, in other words, um, it's acceptable in medical standard of care to use it to treat acute malaria. However, Resistance to this drug is prevalent worldwide. In other words, it's not useful for treating malaria. So it's not suitable as a prophylactic agent for travelers to most areas that have malaria. So this drug can be used for malaria, but there's so much resistance to it that it really isn't a malaria market for it. So if you have malaria, you could use this drug for $750 a pill, but it's not effective because of resistance. The Next thing about this drug, so we know that no use for malaria. Well, what about it's used for toxoplasmosis? Because that's really where it's used in cancer and uh, 
HIV patients. Well, before we get to that, though, let's take a look at the ingredients. Of course, you have the main ingredient, but it's always excipients and binders and other things. So we have lactose in there. What's lactose? Lactose is a highly allergenic, and those are causes allergies, dairy sugar. And one of the side effects of this drug is people get pneumonia from it. And dairy products, including dairy sugar, increase in, uh, pneumonia. Okay, so we have this lactose issue. Next, we have cornstarch. We know that 97% of the corn in the United States is genetically modified. There's a good chance, darn good, that this cornstarch in this pill is genetically modified. So we're giving a genetically modified ingredient to people who have AIDS, have immune, a compromised immune system, people who have cancer, compromised immune system. Then what else are we giving these people? Well, we're giving them um, hydrolyzed starch. Again, processed starch. And we're giving them, this is also in this pill, docosate sodium. Docosate sodium increases a person's bowel movements. This might be actually really the only therapeutic part in the pill. This is a stool softener. It helps hydrate the stool, bring moisture into the stool, soften so it can leave the body. And of course, the ubiquitous additive, magnesium stearate. So we have these additives in here that we see can cause pneumonia, can cause allergies, and are also genetically modified and can worsen immune issues. Okay. What else do we know about this? Well, first of all, how many toxoplasmosis people, uh, how do they respond to this drug? How effective is it? If you give this drug to 10 people with toxoplasmosis, how many of them will be improved by having taken this drug? Well, there's a question. That's my question. I well, how effective is this drug for the use of which it's being given? So it's being given to AIDS patients and cancer patients to prevent toxoplasmosis. And it's being given to people who have toxoplasmosis to treat them, presumably to cure the toxoplasmosis. Now, one case, by the way, of toxoplasmosis is women who are pregnant can get toxoplasmosis from presumably the household kitty cat. And this toxoplasmosis can cause uh, miscarriages or um, deformation of the baby. So these pregnant ladies are given this drug, which, by the way, also causes deformities uh, of the baby and genetic issues. So it seems like to me it'd be a wash there, but we're not going to judge. So I had to go to the UK, that would be uh, London, website, Great Britain website, in order to get detailed information about this drug. The package insert that the uh, American doctors get that's available on, say, um, Medline or under package insert has really very little information. But if we cross the pond in our computer, of course, and we take a look at what they have to say about this drug, it's very, very uh, revealing. And this um, 
is cause, as I say, <laughs> cause for pause. So let's take a look at what uh, the guys across the pond have to say about this. There have been no dose-response studies of this drug in the treatment of toxoplasmosis. So $750 pill, Deriprim, has no dose-response studies of its effectiveness in the treatment of toxoplasmosis. In other words, its main application in cancer patients and AIDS patients. So the following recommendations are therefore for guidelines only. And it goes on to list what dose you might want to use of this drug. Because since there's no studies saying what dose would be effective, these dosing information is for guidelines only. Well, let's take a look. What's a dose response study? And for that, we look to the Journal of Biopharmaceutical Statistics. And this is an um, article written by Stephen Ruberg. And it says dose response studies, some design considerations. Okay. So what is a dose response study? And it says the dose response of a drug is important in pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, toxicology, and clinical research. In other words, the dose response of a drug is important so you can know how to prescribe it, you can know how it behaves in the body, and you can know if it's dangerous and when. And dose response studies may be part of larger research to develop new treatments or to supplement existing knowledge of a drug whose benefits may have already been established. So the study should aim to address the following key questions. Get this. Is there evidence of a drug effect? In other words, is there any evidence a drug is, is beneficial? This is what a dose-response study addresses. So in other words, there have been no studies to address whether or not Daraprim is effective for toxoplasmosis, the condition for which it's being taken at $750 a pill. Next, what dose is required to produce a response different from no drug at all? The study's not been done. So nobody knows how much Daraprim you need to get a response from a patient that's different from doing nothing at all. Not known. What is the nature of the dose-response relationship? Not known. So if you increase the amount of Daraprim, does it increase the effectiveness? Don't know. And is there a level at which the drug becomes harmful? Or a level below which there is no benefit or harm? Don't know. Studies have not been done. But it has been approved by the FDA. So then, in other words, if it's not known what doses needed to create benefit, how then can the benefit be claimed to exist? And what percent of patients respond to therapy? There's no data on this. No data in a package insert. Not even any data online. No clue. So with no evidence of benefit, how can we say that a higher price of the drug is depriving anyone of anything? There's no evidence of this. So there's no 
evidence in the information that the Daraprim manufacturers provide to doctors. There's no evidence in the expanded package insert information online. There's absolutely no evidence that this drug is beneficial in the case for which it's being used. None. And so the absence of any evidence that the drug is even beneficial to people, you cannot claim that the drug company raising the price from a dollar a pill to $750 a pill is at all harmful to anyone. So to really reiterate this, we know the drug is not effective in treatment of malaria because resistance has developed. This is very clear. It says so in the package inserts. This is every place. You, know, you can take it from malaria if you want to, but the malaria is resistant. And further, there is no evidence of its effectiveness in toxoplasmosis. So with such a low case fatality rate, a case death rate of one per half a million in the United States, a study would literally have to have millions of people in it to establish if this drug is effective because the death rate from the disease being studied is so low. And so the death rate from those infected was only one per 5,000. And also, by the way, 25% of those who take this, this drug, they did, they did say that 25% take this drug, will suffer side effects of suppression of the red blood cells and the white blood cells. Just what a cancer patient needs. Just what an HIV patient needs, right? Suppression of their blood cells. Let's take, take another look also at how the media is handling this. Because there's a lot of information. It's Fortune, Fortune magazine. The title says it all, so we're talking about money here. And so they say the drug price conundrum, like there's some kind of uh, puzzle here that needs to be worked out. It says a Q&A with Memorial Sloan Kettering's Dr. Peter Bach. It's like, wow, okay, great, Dr. Bach, he's going to help us out here. And drug prices with a free market and public interest collide. Again, the free market, the drug company's right to price its product as it sees fit is one thing. Where is the public interest here? There is no public interest if the drug you're talking about has no proven effectiveness. And so they're establishing a discussion here, which is drug prices have taken center stage since this drug company raised the price of its off-patent parasite-fighting drug, Darapin. And that's exactly what it is, parasite-fighting. It's not winning any fights here, but it is being used. Prices for brand-name drugs increased almost 15% over the past year alone, according to research. Meanwhile, the cost of life-saving, specialty cancer drugs, have increased by an average of 10% per year since 1995 when adjusted for inflation. So is this a cancer, is this a life-saving specialty cancer drug? I don't know. Let's see what they're saying. Put that in dollar terms. For every year a cancer drug added to a patient's life in 1995, the cost was $54,000. That cost reached 207000 in 2013 for each year added to the cancer patient's life. And so 
this drug company's behavior is not new. Other companies have taken older, off-patent drugs and raised their prices. And this is a common, common thing. This is, this is nothing more than investment and speculation, and that's what investors do. They speculate. Okay, so the CEO of this drug company recently told Fortune that some of the new proceeds from this drug will be put into future research. Well, you don't need future research to figure out to take the lactose out of the drug to stop allergy reactions to dairy. Take the lactose out of the drug to get rid of the pneumonia side effect it creates. You don't need research uh, to sort that out. You don't need research to sort out all the binders and just remove them from the drug. The excipients, binders, and additives that add nothing to the therapeutic benefit of the drug. Anyway, Dr. Peter Bach is a director of the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kevin Cancer Center. So get this. The title is Director of the Center for Health Policy all right, and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's an articulate advocate for creating a stronger connection between the cost of drugs and the value they deliver to patients. Fortune recently sat down with Dr. Bach to talk more about what's behind the drug price mayhem and what could be done to stem the rise. The conversation has been edited for length and clarity. We appreciate that. So they asked him what had been the forces driving drug prices higher. And he says, well, the system was no downward pressure on drug prices. Now, why is there no downward pressure on drug prices? There's no downward pressure on drug prices because patients are not paying out of pocket. And drug manufacturers are reaching into a bottomless pool of insurance premiums that have been pooled together. So if it weren't for compulsory insurance, the drug companies could never get any more money for a drug than the patient had in his hip pocket or his bank account. That would be a downward pressure on prices. And so there's no natural binding mechanism on price such as using value. Now, the patient would very quickly be able to figure out at 750 bucks a pill, he better do something else. But because you have people being forced to pay insurance premiums and people not being allowed to refuse therapy, this is perfect for a drug company. They literally have a captive audience, a captive market. And the market is captive for them. It's captured and incarcerated and bound up by, a, uh, by government policies that force people to take out insurance and by government policies that force people to consume healthcare. But it's rare and reasonably ineffective, particularly in protected classes of drugs and generic drug space like Daraprep. And so it goes on to talk about the only way to get the price lower today is for a competitor to enter. And for a new competitor to enter the generic market, they would have to go through the FDA process, which costs millions of dollars and takes several years. And so what this, this, this doctor, who's, um, you know, I'm presuming a Sloan Kettering, a brilliant guy, uh, you know, has overlooked the obvious, which is just have patients pay out of pocket. And if you can't afford a dollar, by golly, you're not getting it. 
That would be some serious downward pressure on the price. And based on Dara Prim's own data, their own research, we have no reason to believe that any lives would be lost if people did not get Dara Prim. Because it's established that as a malarial drug, it's obsolete because of increased resistance. And as a toxoplasmosis drug, there is no evidence of its effectiveness. In fact, uh, the present manufacturer or even the prior one has done no research to indicate what the proper dose would be. So if you have a drug with no dosing supported by research even, then how can you say the drug is, is necessary? How can you say it has a therapeutic effect when you haven't even documented that? And so this doctor is saying, well, competitors would look at it and say, hey, it's a small market, and even at this higher price, if I get market entry, this entrenched company that already owns the distribution will just price me out of it immediately. There'll be a price war against an entrenched competitor. So the price war, the entrenched competitor wins, the challenger leaves the market and prices go back up. And so they ask him, do you see these factors reversing or slowing at any point? He says, well, it depends on what you mean. In the generic space, there's a limited number of drugs that will meet all these criteria. And they are, by definition, small market drugs. And this drug company led the way here. It doesn't surprise me that other well-financed companies are basically following in their footsteps. But they will eventually run out of products to do this with. I think it's really gotten regulators' attention. Again, the regulation is the problem. The regulation is what causes forcing people to take money from their rent money, from their electricity money, um, from their discretionary funds, and put it into an insurance kitty that only the drug companies, hospitals uh, have access to, has literally created this big, huge, uh, literally like a casino pot that uh, can be tapped. So really, there is no limit on the price of the drugs. If they charge a thousand or ten thousand dollars a pill for these drugs, because the money's been already aggregated together into a pile by the government in a pile called the Affordable Care Act. That is what makes this possible. And further, you've got the FDA approving a drug without any tests indicating the drug is effective or even at what dose the drug is effective for what it's being used for, in this case, toxoplasmosis. So, <laughs> all right, the company has gone on a media blitz, marching out battle-tested rationales for high drug prices and trying them out in this case. It's not that what's happening with Daraprim is different. It's just it's so crystal clear that you can see how hollow the arguments have been all along. But wait, if we say that the government has a right to tell this pharmaceutical company that it needs to lower its price because the drug is a piece of the standard of care being used by doctors, then that means that the government can step in and tell any company what its pricing ought to be. And especially in, in the case, in this case, where you have a drug 
that has no documented benefit. This is just a test case for the government to test the waters to see how willing people are to accept fascism. This has nothing to do with the health of anybody because, again, you've got a drug here where no studies have been done to determine the safe or effective dose. This is, this is interesting. Now, if they were talking about a drug that had dose response studies to back it up, that had any scientific evidence of its effectiveness, then you could make some type of case, however weak, that it would be in the public interest to somehow have the government intervene to make this drug available. So, and what this guy says here is very true. In this case, a company was formed and it raised money from investors in order to buy Daraprim and to do this exact thing. And they can't say the next day we were saddled with this drug and we have to raise the price. But again, we have investors that have gotten together, they've made an investment. And it's not the place of the government to, to buttress that investment, to regulate that investment, and to guarantee them profits, and to fix prices for them or against them. Again, there's no evidence here that there's, there's, no, there's no skin in the game here. There's no, there's no public interest. In the absence of dose response studies, in the absence of any studies showing its effectiveness, you cannot make a compelling case for government intervention here because there's nothing to protect. If the drug were effective, then there might be something to um, protect. And in any case, even if the drug were effective, which is not, I should say there's no evidence of it, you've got an illness that can be handled by washing hands and cooking your food. Duh. Let people know. If you have AIDS, you have cancer, wash your hands and cook your food. And if you got a cat, get rid of it. You know, get a get a stuffed cat, you know. A puppet or something. But now, so this person who's a, an expert in outcome measurement says nothing about the outcomes of this product. Nothing. Not once has he mentioned how effective this product is. And so he says, the system will reward companies for being good at research, for cracking the code, for developing a new product, or for opening up a new avenue. That makes a lot of sense. That's what every other market looks like. But who's this big we here? We reward companies. Who's we? Well, how about the customers? Let these customers dig into their pocket and pay the 750 bucks per pill. And guess what? If they can't afford it, they cannot afford it. And you know what? If they can't afford it, it means 25% of the folks taking this pill will not experience a suppression of their white count, their red count, and other devastating side effects that this drug causes. And he says we have a free market system. We don't have a free market system. If we had a free market system, these investors would tremble in their boots. They wouldn't even have the nerve to even bring forth a $750 pill.
But why would they do it? Because they know the market's been rigged. People have been forced. They've been robbed at gunpoint by the government, forced to put their money in this pile called insurance premiums. And all this company has to do is go to that pile and make a withdrawal. But if they had actually go to the patient face-to-face and convince the patient to reach into their pocket with $750 a pill, this would never have happened. would never have happened. This is sort of an interesting thing. The industry and its arguments are teetering between where a public benefit regulated monopoly and where a private for-profit company behaving like all other for-profit companies are publicly held and for-profit. And so... They're playing both sides of the street, of course, but I say they shouldn't have to. They should just say, hey, private investors got together, bought something, and they're pricing it the way they want to. Fine, go for it. And so they're saying with a regular company like Apple or Exxon, we don't know how they price their products, and we don't care. And we shouldn't care about these drug companies pricing their products either, especially And in this case, there's no evidence of its effectiveness. And I think every time something like this happens, if the government wants to get involved, the only involvement needed is to take a look at the product, rigorously evaluate if indeed it's effective, and publicize to patients how ineffective or how effective it is or if there's any evidence it is effective. And let the drug company and the patient, the customer, make a decision. But now, you've got a situation where everyone but the customer, who's the patient, has decided. You've got Fortune magazine talking to a policymaker who's not even looking at the effectiveness of the pill. And then you've got the insurance companies trying to figure out how they can avoid paying for this thing, yet still give the appearance of being a worthwhile hedge against financial ruin for anyone um, who cares to pay premiums. And so the rationales get marched out of very much the flavor of we need to bring this money in this money to pay for this and so, and these are things we should all care about as a society. And things like better research, better access, better safety, better compliance programs. We do care about those things and we're willing to invest. But frankly, we don't really care if Apple is successful or not. It's cool to have a new iPhone, but the very essence of our humanity doesn't depend on the iPhone. And then here's the big lie, like it does on pharmaceuticals and other healthcare innovations. The essence of our humanity does not depend on pharmaceuticals and other healthcare innovations. It just doesn't. can't make a case for it, especially in this instance. When you have a drug that's no longer effective for malaria, its primary use, and has no evidence, or primary historic use, and has no evidence for effectiveness in its present application to toxoplasmosis. So you have a drug with no evidence of effectiveness, you cannot make an argument that the essence of humanity depends on it. Unless the essence of humanity is pumping people full of drugs that are ineffective. So, he's saying the right way to go, as with any other for-profit company, is say what you can spend your money however you want. But we're going to pay you based on the value of goods that you produce. 
No, this we is the government. And so again, this is saying here, which is very dangerous, is that the government's going to decide what drugs people take. The government's going to decide whether a drug is profitable or not. And this means that the profitability of the drug has nothing to do with the effectiveness of the drug or the benefit to the patient. And so he says, we're going to pay you, you meaning companies, based on your success bringing products to market that effectively alleviate suffering. The more it alleviates suffering, the more we're going to pay you. And so again, at no point does he talk about the effectiveness of Daraprim because there is no effectiveness. And so what he does say, though, is he wants more regulation, of course. I think the role of regulators and the government here is facilitating these programs and offering carrots and sticks for it. In other words, the government should offer profits, increase profits to companies, and should take money away from them. And the government should do all of this. But we know there have been enough studies that if you let patients spend money out of pocket, healthcare prices will fall. Not only will healthcare prices will fall, but people actually get healthier. And then he talks about rationing. And this is really unfortunate that a person whose title is the director of the Center of Health Policy and Outcomes has not even looked at the outcomes of this particular drug. And this is a serious, serious tragedy. So that's the Fortune 5, the Fortune magazine uh, look at this. Then we have The Economist. <laughs> and The Economist runs an article, the title is Drug Pricing in America, Painful Pills. And so everyone wants to vilify uh, this entrepreneur, Martin uh, Shekrell, a biotech entrepreneur, he bought the American marketing rights to Daraprim, a drug that treats, again, treats, doesn't cure, treats a parasitic infection. And so he bought this, and he said the price increase inflamed Americans' anger over the growing cost of prescription medications. In the past year, there's been much criticism of the price of a recently introduced hepatitis C drug, Solvaldi, as well as the cost of new immuno-oncology, that means uh, cancer, and cholesterol-reducing drugs. However, Daraprim is quite different from these treatments. Its patent expired long ago, and in theory, there's nothing to stop another firm from producing and selling it under its generic name. In other countries, such as Britain, Daraprim is sold by other drug companies at a far lower cost of like $20 for 30 pills. Uh, Smith Klein sold the rights to market Daraprim in America in 2010, and those rights changed hands again recently with, with this new buyer. 
For many products, a price rise of more than 5,000% is an open invitation for a competitor to come in and offer something similar for less money. But the market for Daraprim is so small, and the process of getting permission to sell even copies of long-established drugs is so bothersome, that even at its new price, it may not be worthwhile for another firm to do so. And so who creates this bothersome long, long uh, process to get permission? Well, it's the FDA. So this whole situation has been manufactured by the government. This monopoly, this creation of the monopoly, um, the creation of the big pot of money that the, the company can access. All this has been created by the government that's now, of course, calling foul. And he's following in the footsteps of other companies that have bought the rights to older drugs and raised their prices. There's two heart drugs bought by Valiant of Canada, and their prices went up. Horizon Pharmaceutical increased the price of a pain relief tablet, the mobile, and um, by 597% after buying the rights from AstraZeneca in 2013. So this is this is uh, this arbitraging and speculating um, has been going on. And I think that these companies have a perfect right to invest as they see fit and to price their drugs as they see fit. And in any case, where, they, where there's some feeling that these prices are exorbitant, patients should be free to accept reimbursement from the drug company, from the, their insurance companies for the price of these drugs and to go spend that money any way they want. If, if that's... Uh, if that's what the problem is here, that you want the patient to be satisfied, I think any patient would be satisfied receiving $750 a day and doing without this particular drug. Again, there's no evidence that it's effective. And that's, that is key. And so in exchange for not very much uh, evidence of effectiveness, this is what people are getting. Okay. So for treatment of toxoplasmosis, Daraprim should not be used as a solo therapy. It must be combined with a synergistic agent, normally orally administered sulfonamide, as recommended. And also it can be used for proven Infection of the fetus following maternal infection during pregnancy. Eye infections where there's considered to be a risk of visual damage. And toxoplasmosis, plasmatic or plasmic encephalitis, that's brain infection, usually with AIDS patients. Okay. So we talked about the mode of transition, which is basically dirty hands and dirty food and kitty cats. Now, get this about dosing. A loading dose should be given for the first three days of treatment. All right, sounds reasonable. But then doses up to 100 milligrams per day have been used, have been used successfully. Duration of treatment for an infection will depend on the clinical response and tolerability, but should normally be not less than three to six weeks. So you're giving three weeks of treatment? Interesting. And the other thing interesting is that it can take 
20 days for this drug to reach a steady level in the blood of the person receiving it. And usually, the time it takes to receive, to reach a steady state, is considered the time to effectiveness, because obviously you're not going to be effective if you can't maintain a level of drug in the blood. And so you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute. How can this be life-saving if it doesn't even kick in for weeks? All right. Blood and lymphatic system disorders is a side effect. So daily therapeutic doses have not been shown, or should say, have been shown to depress blood in 25 to 50% of patients that take it. So 25 to 50% of patients who take this drug are going to be harmed by it. And you're talking about patients who have AIDS, already a deficiency in their immune system, especially the white cells, and cancer patients. And so this drug can be expected to make things actually worse. Um, so it causes headache, giddiness, seizures, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, colic, ulcers in the mouth, rash, changes in skin coloring, and even fever. And so this fights parasites, but actually creates many symptoms that one associates with parasites. I also want to uh, mention that the diarrhea um, is worsened by an additive in the pill. The docosate. Then you also have pneumonia, a condition worsened by dairy products, another additive in the pill. And so... Obviously, the manufacturer of this pill can make great strides in the health of people using it just by getting rid of the binders and excipients. And so we have here um, a situation where it's not clear that this medication is of any benefit. And so if it's not of any benefit, if that's not clear, then it's not clear that the company raising it to $750 a pill, making it unavailable to, to people who don't have that kind of money, is in any way harmful. Again, multiple dose studies indicate the steady state is achieved in 12 to 20 days. So if you have an emergency, someone who's sick or ill from toxoplasmosis, then this isn't going to kick in for 12 to 20 days. So this is an important thing that has to be taken into account and understood. This is simply nothing more than a, um, a ploy to justify um, incredible regulation, intervening more power from the doctor, from the patient, and amassing that power centrally where the money is so that these companies can continue to profit and their profits can be um, supported. So what's the moral of the story? What do you do? Answer is this. Drug companies should be allowed to price their products 
any way they want to. But at the same time, patients can decide if they want to pay for them or if they don't want to pay for them. And if the government wants to intervene in any way, they should intervene on the side of educating patients as to the true effectiveness of these drugs. You know, if there is some data for effectiveness, then show it. It's certainly not available on the internet. And in the UK, uh, the package inserts very clear that there is no data. There is no dose effectiveness data, no dose response data at all. So what's the private citizen to do? Just pass it up. Just uh, say, you know what, sounds good. And uh, whatever price a drug company wants to charge is fine. If you feel you're not able to afford the medication, then leave it alone. Chances are it's just like um, this particular medication. It's a medication that has no evidence of effectiveness. Um, many of them do not. And when you look at the package inserts and you compare the outcome with and without the medication, the difference is often quite slight. So that's the Daraprim story. And again, the, the issue with the natural sites is they're all um, saying, hey, this Daraprim is great, everybody should have it, um, it's saving lives, when there's no evidence that it is. And, and this type of um, shoddy research, this type of misrepresentation, it just adds to the propaganda and misleading information that patients are inundated with that keeps them sick and keeps them poor and keeps them suffering. And so I would urge people to visit my, my website, vitalitycapitalist.com, and um, check out the one-on-one um, -on -one sessions if you have questions, or go to vitalitycapitalist.com forward slash candida, and you'll get your report of, about the candida cleaner, about turpentine, something that does have uh, dose-response information, where there is evidence of uh, a minimum dose, a minimum effective dose, and a maximum safe dose. So that is it for this episode of Healing with Dr. Daniels. We'll see you again next week, and remember, think happens.